Romans 8, starting in verse 1, something done for you, something done to you, and something done through you. So let's look at the first uh, nine verses, excuse me, eight verses, and we'll see the something done for you there. Paul starts by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's coming off of chapter 7, which he was talking about the law and how we relate to the law and how we're not under the law anymore. Uh, that we're, you know, the, the law just stirs up our flesh and, and every time it stirs up our flesh, we realize that, you know, we're broken again and we blow it again and we struggle with that presence. But now he's saying, hey, but because of the Spirit's presence in our lives, we're going to see there is no condemnation for us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's, that's a done deal. You can't be condemned. You can be disciplined. The Bible is very clear about that, that a, a child can be disciplined, and that discipline can be pretty strong. But that discipline is for the pers- purpose of the peaceful fruits of righteousness, Hebrews 12 tells us, not for condemnation. Okay? So he says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's what chapter 7 was about, the law of sin and death. For God has done, here's what he's done, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, not in sinful flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, meaning for a sin offering in a sense. He condemned sin in the flesh. So that's what God's done for us. He sent his son to accomplish for us what could have never been accomplished through the law. So notice how even in the midst of growth, we're three chapters into growing as Christians, and Paul cannot get past the fact that the gospel and what God did for us through Jesus Christ is the heart and soul of our of our growth. And then he tells us the purpose in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Here's my first point for you, and we'll talk through this a little bit in this section. Is Jesus Christ was condemned for sin so that God's standard could be fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. That's a a mouthful. But Paul says a lot in this passage. He has a tendency to, to give us a whole lot of information that's important for us to understand. But, but here's at the heart of it. Is as a Christian, as Christians, we cannot be condemned. If you're a, a Christian, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you've been born again as the Bible describes it, you cannot be condemned. For, for you to be condemned would mean, would require that God's rejecting the offering that his son made for you and me. It's not your rejection that would have to take place. It's his rejection. Because that's what he's done for us. He sent his son to accomplish for us what we could never accomplish on our own. 
As a result, Paul says, I'm able to please God as I walk by the Spirit. When you're walking according to the Spirit, you are fulfilling the law in a way that's pleasing to God. That's what he is telling us here. If you were to just try to accomplish the law by yourself, as we looked at last week and Paul talked about in his his struggle, when you try to struggle to to follow all these rules in your own strength, all it does is, is conjure up the fact that you are rebellious against those things and it just continues to reveal your flaws. But when you walk according to the Spirit, when you walk in relationship to Jesus Christ and, and as we talked about in, in remembering what he's done for you and, and letting that love, that incredible sacrifice begin to transform you from the inside out, you're not just gonna wanna obey the law. You're gonna go above and beyond what the law says. And we're gonna see that here even in a little bit. See, I live according to the Spirit as I set my mind on the things of the Spirit. Paul says that in this passage. He says, uh, the one who walks according to the flesh, but we, 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 or we should not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Let me help you flesh that out a little bit where Paul talks about this concept uh, to the church in Galatian, uh, and he t- takes it a little bit further and helps us understand what that means. He says, but I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So you can see Paul's using these same terms here. The flesh meaning our, our fallen, broken nature. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So Paul's talking about that, that battle that goes on in a believer. He says, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, now he's going to identify these, are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So let me pause there for a minute. That's what Paul says reveals the flesh. A lot of those things are things we probably obviously would think of, but here's something that's interesting about this. If you've been in church for any length of time, some of these are obvious, sexual immorality, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, those kinds of things, drunkenness, orgies. I mean, everyone kind of knows those are off limits. But have you ever stopped to look in this passage or this section at how many words address just divisiveness or disagreement or dissension within the church. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you have been in in a church where there was a lot of division or a lot of divisiveness or, or that kind of stuff going on? Unfortunately, many of these things become real obvious to us and other ones are included in the same list and are just as displeasing to God, just as much a reflection of the flesh as some of these other things. I think that's important for us to understand. In fact, he, like six different ways Paul describes those kinds of things in the church. And here's what I think is important. It's not to say that we'll never have disagreements or there won't be differing viewpoints, but there's a biblical way to handle it. 
And when you allow dissension and division and when you get caught up in it and start talking about it and you, you go through that process, you have to understand you are, that's not a spiritual thing. It's not this little group and this is the spiritual group and they're experiencing this. That is a sign of fleshly living, period. And it's talked about more than a lot of these other things in terms of how we operate. When we set our minds on those things, we are operating according to the flesh Paul says. But this passage goes on to give us the spiritual side of things too, or the spirit. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Meaning when you set your mind on those things, you, you fulfill the law because there's not a law against that. You're going to go above and beyond any law that's written when you operate according to those things. So those are great passages, great truths for you to write down or to meditate on or to think about how do I live more according to the Spirit? Well, Paul says you set your mind on the things of the Spirit and you will live according to it. Moving on in the passage uh, to see what, uh, that was what was done for us, what Christ did for us. Now he's going to see what has been done to you. And in this part of the passage, starting in verse 9, Paul kind of turns from just stating these general truths and to talk specifically directly to the, the church in Rome. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Real important. Paul's using two different uh, I don't want metaphors isn't necessarily in the way, but two different ways of describing something. And this is really important. He's going to use in the flesh and in the spirit to talk about the realm in which we've been placed. Kind of like the reins of sin. You're either under sin's domain or you're under the spirit's domain. He uses the term according to to describe different ways in which we might act in general. And and here's part of what you see in here, and Paul was just kind of talking about this even in chapter 7, we see it in other realms, is that that at the end of of verse 8, we saw that that if you're in the flesh, it's impossible for you to please God. Do you notice that in in verse 8? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's a person who still lives in the reign of sin. That the only thing that influences them is themselves. They are not a believer in Jesus Christ. They haven't been changed. So the only realm in which they have is the flesh. And the flesh cannot please God. It is absolutely, totally unable to do that. As Christians, we are transferred into the realm of the spirit. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Paul's going to mention that. And in that realm... You still have your old body. You still have that flesh there that's, in a sense, been put to death or your, yourself has been put to death, but you're still carrying this broken, fallen body that, that has the ability to do that. So now you have two possible choices that which you could do. You could walk in the Spirit or according to the Spirit. You have that ability to do it. Or you could walk according to the flesh. You can't ever go back into the realm of the flesh under its rule but you can at times choose to submit to your fleshly desires and walk according to your flesh. So Christians have a, a choice. You can walk according to the Spirit, and that's what this chapter is all about. Paul is basically coming out and saying, Christians, you have no excuse now for sinning anymore. 
You may have before saying, hey, it was my own flesh and my flesh can't obey this. But now with the Spirit, you can submit to the Spirit every single time if you want to, if you choose to. But it's your choice now. And part of that, God is working in you, but you, you still are not excused. Even though this old body of flesh is with us, you have the Spirit to walk according to it. So let's continue. It says, if in fact, uh, excuse me, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, and he gives a condition, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, meaning if, you're, if you don't have the Spirit, then you're, you're still in the flesh. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead, so there he's talking about our broken bodies that's still dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So there Paul's talking about that future resurrection, that, that we're in this dead body now, we're in this temporal state, but if you have the spirit in you and your, your new person is alive to Christ, then your outer person, this dead body that you have, he's going to give life to that as well. He's going to resurrect it just like he resurrected Jesus' body. But this old body, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, has to die. It has to be sown in dishonor, Paul says. It has to go into the grave and sown like a seed in dishonor so it can be raised in honor. It has to be sown in brokenness or sin and raised in, in glory. So that's a sign that this is going to take place in our lives when that change is taking place inside us. So let me give you the second point to see what has been done to you. I am in the Spirit if I have trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I am in the Spirit if I have trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. When Paul uses that, he means in the, the realm of the Spirit. You've been transferred from one realm, meaning in the flesh, to another realm, meaning in the Spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit happens the moment a person becomes a Christian. And it's that Spirit that transfers us from the realm of in the flesh to the realm of in the Spirit. It's what we call the baptism of the Spirit. You're being baptized. The word baptized doesn't just mean immerse. It means to be identified with. And what the Spirit does is it baptizes you. It identifies you with the body of Christ. That's a new spiritual body as Christians. We were in an old body and Paul's been using that imagery that before Christ, then our, the only body we were part of was Adam's body, right? Adam was the representative of humanity. And so every person that's born is identified with Adam and his body. We all have bodies just like his. They're fallen, they're broken. But when you become a Christian, the spirit identifies you with Christ's body. And you have a new lineage. Adam is no longer your ultimate representative. Now, we heard this earlier. We still have this body of death. And until we die physically, this body is still going to battle that. It's still going to want to be like Adam when your spirit wants to be like Christ. But, but you are no longer defined by that person anymore. You've been transferred into the realm of the spirit. You don't have to give in to that anymore. And so because of the Spirit's indwelling, I'm able to walk in righteousness. Even though my fallen body is dead to sin, I don't have to walk according to my fallen body's desires. 
the Spirit's indwelling empowers me to live differently. So that's different. It's important to understand some concepts that this passage touches on, that there's a baptism in the Spirit, meaning when you're identified and, and baptized into Christ's body, and then there's the filling of the Spirit, which is an ongoing thing. Baptism is a one-time thing. You're baptized into the body of Christ the moment you become a believer. Filling is an ongoing thing. It's something that's commanded for us to do. Paul says to the Ephesians church in Ephesians 5, he says, be filled with the Spirit. He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Meaning, wine is something that we allow to control us or alcohol, some other substance controls us. And Paul's saying, don't do that. He says, instead, be filled, be controlled by the Spirit. Paul talks about not quenching the Spirit or, or not grieving the Spirit. When we resist the Spirit's leading in our lives, and I think we know when that happens, when the Spirit takes truth and brings it to our mind, and we're in, we're in the midst of a choice that we know this is going to be bad, and I'm being convicted that this is, I know this is what's good. When we walk according to the flesh, we quench or grieve the Spirit. And we don't act like the people Jesus saved and redeemed us to be. We need to continually be filled, continually submitting ourselves to the Spirit's control. That's that element of choice of walking according to the Spirit. Third thing we're going to see in this passage is what God is doing through you what God is doing through you, and that's in uh, verses 12 to 17. And here Paul gets to his summary, the basis of this, or what he wants us to, to walk away with. He says, so then, brothers or sisters, brothers and sisters, he says, because what have God has done for us, because of what he's done to us, he's done for us, he's done everything that was necessary in Christ to remove us from condemnation and to bring the spirit into our lives to be baptized into his body. He's done that to us. And he says, so then, we are debtors, not to the flesh. I mean, we don't owe anything to this flesh anymore, to that old realm, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live, or if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, a lot of these, Paul's talking about, you know, right or left as if you're only one or the other. And there's aspects where you are positionally. But there's aspects where we can act like this even as Christians. And in a smaller scale, we experience death. See, if you, if you live according to your flesh in your marriage or according to the flesh in your finances, even if you're a Christian, you're going to experience death in those areas. You're, you're going to experience a temporal death, a, a damage in those areas until you submit them to God and, and walk according to the Spirit in those areas. And so that, the ultimate end is if you continue to live by the flesh, if that's all you are because you're in the flesh, you're going to die and be separated eternally from God. But there's also little deaths that can experience as Christians when we walk according to things that aren't good for us, when we make choices that we know aren't according to God's will. But he said, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic term for father that means dad, an intimate, close relationship by which we cry, Dad, Father. 
So the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's Paul starting to touch on the next theme. So what is he saying here? What has been uh, is being done through us. Is, and that's this. I can live by the Spirit because I know I have been adopted into an intimate relationship with God. I can live by the, the Spirit. or I, We could even say I should live by the Spirit. I'm indebted to that because I know I have been adopted into an intimate relationship with God. You see, adoption, and, and I'm, I think the original audience would have known this, adoption was a common practice in the Roman society. And, and as Paul was writing to him, Paul was familiar with Roman culture. I believe he was alluding to this in a very unique way because in Roman culture, it was not uncommon for a, a father to find a son whom he wanted to adopt into his family. And the legal process in, in Roman culture, when you adopted them in, they received all the legal rights that an actual physical child did. And oftentimes, that father would adopt them in and give that new adopted son all the affection that his own natural children would do. In fact, he would do that. He would adopt them in for the very purpose of passing on his name and his inheritance to that adopted son. It was a, not just a legal transaction. It was a very intimate one that had all the ramifications of those legal things with him. See, as we come to understand uh, the overwhelming security of adoption that Paul is talking about here into a loving relationship with not a God that we need to fear, meaning shake in his presence, fear maybe in reverence or in, in, in awe of who he is, but a, a loving father, one that we can cry out and say, Dad, I need your help. Paul's saying, when that happens in your life, and that's what the Spirit does through us. He says it's not a have to put the de- death, the deeds of the flesh, it's a want to. It, it begins to change you to say, once I experience the, the beauty, the joy, the intimacy of the most amazing and significant, powerful, holy being in the whole universe, why would I let anything in my life hinder me from that? Why would I not do everything in my power to move out of my life and get rid of my life things that hinder that incredible joy, that amazing intimacy that only God our Father can give to us. I mean, think of uh, of our heavenly relationships. I love that in times Jesus would, would use an analogy like this as heavenly fathers. And I think of my own kids, and many of you are parents, and, and, and you know that there's, there's a, a, just a strange love that parents have for their kids uh, to the point where we're just like blind to other things, right? We just think our kids are the greatest 
all the time and, and well, maybe not all the time, but we, we just, I, we love them so much. It's like, it's, it's like we'll do anything for them. And even if they wander way off and we may be broken and heartbroken, I mean, they, could, they could wander off, they could be gone as long as possible doing the most horrible things that just break our heart. But the moment they turn back, the moment you see them like the, the father saw the prodigal son, running back, crying out, Dad, I'm so sorry, Dad, I, I don't know what I was doing. A father's heart, a mother's heart, longs for that intimacy with the child. And this passage is saying, that's what the Spirit speaks into our hearts as we relate to this Father. That, that as Jesus would say, if, if you and I, being sinners, love our kids like that, how much more does your heavenly Father give you good things? Church, when the Holy Spirit reveals in our hearts and testifies, as Paul says here, of the intimacy that we have with God, that we can call God not just this distant, you know, God that's way out there, totally disconnected that we live in fear of, but when we have the privilege to call him dad and cry out in our greatest time of need, even if it's in moments of absolute brokenness and and just understanding our own wretchedness, that begins to change us. And we recognize that we're children. See, Jesus, interestingly enough, prayed to his father like this. And, and, and if, you, if you think about when he prayed, he often used father. He taught his disciples to pray with father. But there is one specific time when he used these exact words that Paul spoke about in this passage, Abba, Father. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he was going to be betrayed, the night he was going to be judged and eventually hung on that cross, Jesus in that garden cried, Abba, Father. He said, if, if there is any other way, please take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Now, now we, we often struggle to see Jesus as a real person. We just see him as this guru on the pages, and we don't step in to see what did he really accomplish and what was he even saying at that moment. I want you to stop and think about what was taking place at that moment. At the, this is the heart of the gospel. Jesus, using the most intimate term he could use to talk to his dad, he's saying, Dad, Please don't, if there's any other way. He's using a a term of intimacy when he knows that his father is getting ready to bring the most ruthless, horrible wrath upon him for our sins, not his, for our sins. He's going to experience something he's never experienced in his life. And it's, I mean, if there's ever a time when you would experience fear, it would be when God says, you are going to experience the fullness of my wrath. 
And yet Jesus addresses him in that moment with a term of intimacy. Dad, please don't. But not my will. Let yours be done. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus talk to his father in that way, in that moment? Because he knew that you and I needed to see the reality of an intimacy that we have never fully experienced before. See, wh what do we do when things get difficult in our lives? What do we do when, when we're challenged to, to either obey or not obey? We hide from God. We often get fearful from God rather than drawing near like Jesus did. And he drew near. He, he went through that so that you and I could experience an intimacy that we'd never known. You see, Jesus had known that intimacy from all of time. He'd never known anything but the richness of that intimacy. That's why the things of this world never looked nearly as good to him as they do to us. Because he knew what awaited him. And so he came down, not, not risking it. He came down to show us an absolute security that even if God poured out his infinite wrath on his son, even if he was concerned whatever that looked like in, in God and, and man together saying, God, please don't do this. Even if in the midst of that deepest, darkest moment for Jesus, he could easily trust his father and have an intimacy with him that, that blows us away. It should let us know that that same intimacy is available to you and me through this same spirit. So I want to ask you to do something here today. I'm going to apply this in, a, in some very specific ways. As we talk about what hinders our intimacy, what hinders our joy, what hinders our security, Ultimately, it's not realizing the true intimacy you have with God. It's not recognizing what he did to welcome you into his family. You see, some of us are here today, and, and in our marriages, when, when we seek an intimacy in this world or a joy in this world or a security in this world that's beyond what this world can offer, it becomes a, 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 a hindrance to our true, secure intimacy with God. And some of us do that in our marriages. We, we, we want an intimacy, a joy, a security in this earthly marriage that, that it can't offer. We put too much hope, too much intimacy, too much security in it. And then what happens is, is when it lets us down, when, it, when we don't get the intimacy that we want from it, when we don't get the security that we want from it, we then go and disobey God in order to find it our own way. Instead of, of resting in the intimacy of God, deepening ourselves in a joy and security only he can give. And when we seek it only and first and foremost in him, 
then it frees us to love in a relationship that maybe can never fully meet our needs the way we might wrongly want. Some of you are single here today, and and this issue is so important for you to understand because you long for intimacy. You need intimacy. You need security. But you need it in the one person who is never going to let you down, who is always going to perfectly supply what you need. But when you seek it in in another relationship in an inappropriate way, ways which you know are not right before God, or when you don't have a relationship that you think, I'm not going to be significant if I don't have an earthly relationship right now and everyone around me has these relationships and I'm just missing out on true intimacy, i got to have it. And so you cross boundaries that you know are wrong to get an intimacy that is not right. You'll disobey God to pursue an intimacy that can never truly satisfy you. Instead, God's saying, dad. I'm here. I'm here to give you an intimacy, a joy, a security that that is nothing like this world can offer. And when you press in to that, it allows you to let go of unhealthy forms of intimacy, unhealthy forms of joy that this world's trying to lure you away with. I don't know what that looks like in your life today. But here's what I'd like to to close our service with today. Is is when when we allow these hindrances to this intimacy, this relationship we have with God into our lives, they they break our fellowship, not our relationship, but our fellowship and our enjoyment with God. And what Paul is talking about here in this passage is he's saying, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Put them to death. They will not result in joy. They will not result in security. They will not result in intimacy. So I'm going to give you some time right now as a church. Give us some time because this is speaking to me today as well. To just say, God, what do I need to put to death? And, and in that garden, have that conversation just like Jesus said, Dad, please don't. Some of you are you're scared to death of letting this go and you're saying, God, don't take that away from me. Don't take that away from me. Don't take that away from me. And you've stopped there. But you need to take that next step and say, but God, as afraid of I, as I am of losing this that I know probably isn't good, not my will, but yours. You're my dad. You love me more than anything in this world. So take what you must. Put this to death in me, God, so I may walk in life according to your spirit. As we sing this song, I'm just going to ask you to to respond, to have that conversation, to say, God, I know I have not been willing to let this go. I know this needs to be put to death and confess. I believe that's the, the beginning of the Spirit's filling, is for us to acknowledge, to repent of those things we know 
are in our flesh. And as you do that, as, you, as we sing this song, just offer that to God, confess it to him, and then say, God, my Father, will you fill me afresh with your spirit? Will you give that filling, that empowering, that intimacy that only your spirit can give to me so that I can have a satisfaction that makes me no longer want that in my life that never gives what it promises. If you want to get up, you can do that. If you want to walk to the front and just kneel and and respond in that way, if you want to go out to an aisle, if you want to kneel right where you're at, let's just let this be a time where God's church just turns back to him and acknowledges him as our dad and says, God, forgive me and fill me afresh.